0: hello my dear friend squiring the phoenix chapter 6 final chapter the entity's spoken universes the child's query spawned a new one energy springing forth from a series of detonations that could be labeled only catastrophic it was small it was a small tight universe far too energetic to allow for matter The blast waves of creation bounced back and forth, interfering with each other both constructively and destructively. Life sprang into existence in chaotic vortices of those waves, being made of energy fields surfed. Beings made of energy fields surfed the fires of creation, exploring the limits of the reality. They came together, communicating in modulated electromagnetic fields. Philosophy and poetry and science and art came to be and grew to great heights as each of the field beings sought their own way to express the joy of their existence. The universe expanded and expanded, its physical laws shifting as time passed. Quantum effects grew to affect the macroscopic level, world lines growing and shifting and changing. The effects washed through the endless quadrillions of intelligences. Many of them ceased to exist and then came back or didn't or flipped between the two states or suddenly had never existed at all. Energy blossomed from nowhere. In its wakes, in its wake, trillions of lives were destroyed and created and then the physical laws shifted once more and time ceased to be. Every particle, every creature, every ray of light was frozen in its place unmoving but fil- filled with potential should time ever return. The entities spoke in universes, and the thought behind the universe was, for them, relatively simple. An ancestral human could not have understood the nuances and overtones, but the basic message might have been comprehensible. Well, what happened next, Daddy? Harry dropped into a chair with a sigh, taking his glasses off and scrubbing his face with both hands. No luck with Ignatius, huh? Hermione asked sympathetically, sliding him a mug of butterbeer. Harry put his glasses back on and took a long pull on the butterbeer. Sort of, he said. I mean, sure, he knows how to create another resurrection stone, but he didn't have any good ideas for automating the process. The best I've got so far is to have teams of wizards get together and do it, except it requires a hell of a lot of power, and all that power is taken from the source permanently. We've tried feeding it power from non-human sources like magical animals and such. It works, but it's so inefficient that it's not worth the trouble. It looks like it really needs human magic. Wizards on their deathbeds? She asked, clearly just checking the obvious and not expecting a yes. Harry shrugged. The only way I can see to do it, he said. Still, won't help much. I did some basic calculations. Given the average amount of power left in a wizard dying of old age, it will require about a hundred dying wizards giving up everything they have left, plus another eleven wizards to focus on manipulating the energy, ten to gather it and direct it to the last who actually cast the spells. Plus, the ritual takes a minimum of two days, and it could be up to a month, depending on various factors, not all of which Ignatius understood. She grimaced. Well, that's not good. We're not going to be able to produce enough of them like that. Harry nodded morosely and took another pull on the butterbeer. Tell me about it. Ten resurrections per day and thirty per week without draining the stone too much. It's not even remotely enough. Just getting the Twin Towers victims all resurrected is going to take two years. I thought you were experimenting with recharging the stone, she asked. He shrugged. Yeah, we got it working, but it doesn't scale well. You can only feed power to the stone if you're in physical contact with it, and it's very inefficient. I did a Fermi calculation. If we got a hundred wizards, roughly at Dumbledore's level, to recharge the stone as often as possible, and they all exhausted themselves each time, we could add another five resurrections per day, ten per week. That's maybe there's maybe two hundred wizards in the world at that level, and ten of them are former Dark Lords sitting in Nurmengard. Do you need wizards that powerful? Hermione asked. Could Swib could squibs do it? They don't have much power, but there's an awful lot of them. Maybe <coughs> Oh, excuse me. Maybe each one could just give a little power and together it would be enough. Harry shook his head. It was an overhead cost just to get the connection started, and then a huge fraction of what you send down the connection is just wasted. A normal wizard like McGonagall could barely contribute at all. Hermione nodded and took a sip of her own butter beer. She didn't used to like the stuff, but it had grown on her as she got older. How's Professor McGonagall doing anyway? She asked. I haven't seen her in months. Harry chuckled. Good as ever. She's at Hogwarts again, terrifying the next generation of first years with her Transfiguration is Dangerous speech. Hermione smiled. Remember the look on her face when you he resurrected her? She drew up her face into a bitter lemon pucker and looked down her nose at Harry. I am not entirely certain that I approve of your interference with the natural order, Mr. Potter, but thank you. Now, where are my clothes? This hospital gown is drafty. Harry smiled. You have to admit, as first words go, it's pretty memorable. For the rest of the evening, the two friends sat together in their private room at Mary's place. It was the only time of the week that either of them allowed themselves away from the pressures of work. Both of them felt that what they did was too important to waste time on fripperies such as drinking butter beer with old friends. At least, not too often. Hal reached the top of the hill, unfolded his camp chair, and sat down. He looked out over the rolling Martian deserts, ancient red sands stretching as far as the eye could see. Off in the distance, a dust storm was blowing towards them a titanic wall of fury that would scour away anything it touched with a brace of sand. The weather satellite said it would sweep over the base in a few hours, but he had some time. Twisting around, he studied the base behind him. It didn't look like much. It was a squat bunker 50 feet on a side and 10 feet high, with only two entrances. A personnel door that looked much like a fire door from Earth, and a garage door-style door style cargo entrance 30 feet wide right now the windward side was half buried in rust red sand and after the dust storm went through most of the place would be completely underground according to the rotation it would be hal's job to bulldoze the doors clear the bunker was deceptive it was nothing but the top of the elevator shaft leading down to red sand city hal and his family had arrived three months ago and he'd been amazed It was one thing to be told that you would be living underground, in an underground city of half a million people, but it was something else entirely to actually see it. The tunnels seemed to go on forever, and the atrium at the center was 200 meters high and 60 meters in diameter. The railings at each level were filled with planters that were mostly full of ivy and other hanging plants that tumbled down from one level to the next, making the whole place look like the hanging gardens of Babylon. As beautiful as it was, it was also functional. The ivy had been heavily genetic-engineered. The vines and leaves came in a bewildering array of colors, all carefully calculated for their positive psychological effects. The leaves were the size of a man's spread hand, increasing the carbon dioxide absorption, thereby reducing the strain on the air scrubbers. The subtle perfume they admitted was relaxing and comforting, again to help prevent tunnel madness. Psychological profiles on the earliest colonists had revealed that the all-red, all-the-time hues of the base were a primary cause in the stress and nightmares that everyone seemed to develop after a few weeks. A lot of effort had been put into widening the tunnels and adding aesthetics to the place. The plants, giant murals, even a water park. Hal grinned behind his helmet. Wasn't that an amazing thing? A water park on a planet that was nothing but desert. It had been easy enough, though. Joel and Hermione had bounced a few dozen wizards up one day. They all cast the fire hose version of Aquaman and kept it going overnight, and boom, giant water park. Of course, the city wasn't that large, and they kept sending colonists up faster than new tunnels could be dug. Things were getting tight, and people were starting to complain. The crowding wasn't the worst part, though, at least not for Hal. For Hal, the worst part was the noise. There was never a time when it was just quiet. There were always people running through the corridors outside his cubic. The door wasn't thick enough to keep the sound out. When he was out in the city itself, the noise was constant and loud. For a guy who'd been raised on a farm in South Dakota, it was like being hit in the face all day, every day. Hence, he came out here. Aside from the emergency frequency, his suit's radio channels were all on mute. Unless something went disastrously wrong, he could just sit, contemplate the stark majesty of Mars, and enjoy the silence. Hey, love. Have you thought about the colony thing? Jax asked. Monique smiled up at him. Tell me again why you want to do this, she said. The sparkle in her eye... The slightly teasing tone of her voice made him cautiously optimistic. It's an incredible opportunity, he said, with a shrug. Aphrodite needs hydraulic engineers badly. They're paying a million francs a year. They also need doctors, so you won't be bored. It'll look great on our resume. We'll spend a year there and then we can write our own ticket when we come back. Plus, think about it. We would be part of the first in team, the first humans on the new exoplanet. Every step we took would be the first time a human had ever touched that patch of earth. Even the stars would be different. New constellations, new views on the face of God. Everything will be new. The view in the telescope shows what Aphrodite was like 80 years ago. We'll get to see what it's like now. It'll be like stepping through time. She leaned over and kissed him. I love it when you get passionate, she said. I've given notice at the hospital and reached out to my cousin to see if she'd like to house sit for us for a year. I know we can come home on, on weekends if we want, but the website says there's a limited number of travel slots. We don't get paid for any time we're off world. Better to stay there for the whole year, I'd say. His eyes lit up. He grabbed her by the shoulders and whirled her around, laughing and kissing her time after time. Hey, honey, is it true about the genes? Bill asked, giving his wife a kiss as she came in the door. Helen looked at him in confusion. What? she asked. They, they said on the news that you guys found the Atlantean gene sequence and you're going to be able to turn Mundanes into wizards. Bill was actually holding his breath in anticipation. He loved his wife dearly, but he if he was being honest, it had always bothered him that she was a wizard and he wasn't. Sometimes... Deep in the night, when he couldn't sleep, he found himself wondering if she was settling. She was beautiful, rich, a powerful wizard, and even a candidate for this year's Nobel. He was an insurance adjuster. What did he have to offer a woman like that? But if she really could make him a wizard, well, maybe he could just measure up a little. She sighed and kissed him. Damn it. I told Gunther to keep his mouth shut. She growled. Stupid kid, the media always gets it wrong. I'm, I'm sorry, love, but n- no. We found a group of genes that are present in every wizard subject we tested, but none of the mundanes. The Atlantean marker is probably in there somewhere, but it's going to be years before we can really identify it. Then a long time before we could even conceivably start inserting it into mundanes, and even then it would probably have to be done in vitro with a fertilized egg. The idea of turning adult mundanes into wizards... I'm I'm sorry, love, it's not very likely. She wrapped her arms around him and rested her chin on his shoulder. She knew perfectly well how he felt. One of the greatest failures of her life was her inability to convince him of how perfect he was. Wizard or mundane, scientist or insurance adjuster, none of that mattered. What mattered is that he was him... The man who she adored, who made her feel complete, who could always bring her out of a bad mood. He gave melt-worthy foot rubs. His advice about how to deal with people had allowed her to navigate the political shoals of her career. And he cooked food that was better than most restaurants. And of course, there was the sex. The mind-blowing sex that always left her gasping and unable to feel her feet. Somehow, she'd never been able to convey any of that in a way that he believed and now that stupid shit gunther had leaked totally false information to the press and the love of her life was going to be miserable for days even if he wouldn't show it oh he said looking utterly crushed ellen cursed mentally and swore that she would fire gunther the first thing in the morning and then blackball him from the scientific community and maybe set him on fire She hugged Bill tighter, trying to physically press the truth of her love from her body into his, but knowing she wouldn't be able to. He held her for a moment longer, then stepped back and pasted a smile on his face. Well, that's fine then. It did sound pretty wild. Anyway, your timing is good, because dinner just came out of the oven. I've got poached salmon, stuffed mushrooms, and for dessert I made a chocolate gelato that came out pretty well. Why don't you get settled, and I'll serve up. Storage formula. Version 86, trial 5. Caster is Matilda Jones. Researcher, Ben Johnson. Ben turned off the recorder and picked up his pad. Okay, Maddie, whenever you're ready. Maddie dipped her left hand into the 40-millimeter jar of reddish-purple fluid and waved her hand. In the right Wingardium Leviosa," laviosa she said pointing her wand at the small lead weight on the table in front of her the weight that she'd never been able to move in 85 versions and over 500 trials or for that matter in 36 years of life being a squib was a frustrating existence in wizarding or mundane society the weight rattled Maddie's eyes went huge, and her hands shook so badly she dropped her wand. "'Maddie, you did it!' Ben shouted. "'And look! Look at the formula!' "'Numbly, Maddie turned her eyes down to the jar of liquid her hand was still resting in. "'Instead of the original rich red-purple, it was now more of a pastel orange. "'I did it,' she whispered. "'It worked! Oh my god, it worked! Congratulations!' Ben said, resting a hand on her shoulder. Let me buy you a beer. We need to celebrate this. She shook her head, scooping the wand up in determination. Not yet. I want to see it fly. I think I just need more magic. How are we fixed? Ben jumped to his feet and pulled the cabinet open. Inside it was a 20-gallon tank of prototype storage fluid. All of it rich purple-red of stored magic. We had Weltlethorpe in yesterday to charge it up. Ben said as he carefully dispensed a liter. You got it to rattle with only forty, so let's start with a hundred and work up from there. I bet you'll have the thing flying around by dinner time. In point of fact, it took one hundred and seventeen milliliters of stored magic and two hours of careful experimentation before Maddie, a squib, who'd never been able to float so much of a feather, was twirling a hundred grams of lead around the room like a frantic butterfly. Congratulations, you passed the test. Job says 20 bucks an hour. Y'all be drug tested twice a month. They find anything you're fired. Do you want the job? The interviewer asked disinterestedly. He'd said the same words to 40 people today, and there were more than 100 outside. Yes, very much, please, the kid in front of his desk said, nodding eagerly. Black kid, 16 years old, although he was probably lying about his age. Skinny as a rail with a hole in his jeans. The only way he could have said wrong side of the tracks more loudly was if he'd held up a neon sign. The interviewer mentally shrugged. He didn't care where the bodies came from as long as they were warm and could do the job. He had a quota to fill. Fortunately, there were plenty of candidates. It turned out there were a lot of squibs in the population and a job charging Magnon tanks was easy money. Mandy paused to scratch her nose, then slid her arm back into the robot sleeve. This was the part of the job she loved the most. She was mundane as mundane could be, but give her a a wand, a sleeve, and a hundred gallons of Magnon, and she was good to go. She made sure that she had a good grip on the wand and her left hand in the Magnon tank aimed the wand at the pallet of crates and pushed the button. The sleeve swirled her arm and hand in the proper pattern. A recorded voice said, Wingardium Leviosa. The pallet and its contents rose obediently into air, the air. Mandy shifted it over to the appropriate spot on the freighter's deck and set it down carefully, then pushed the button to end the spell and checked the readouts. And frowned. The gauge on her control panel said the tank of Mignon had dropped from ninety-nine "'87% color saturation to 95.01. "'The expected weight of a pallet of coffee "'shouldn't have taken more than 2%. "'Something was wrong. "'Hey, Joe,' she called to her foreman. "'Either they mislabeled the crates "'or someone's smuggling again "'because that pallet's too heavy.' "'Harry Potter III and his brother Remus "'were on hand to watch with tears in their eyes "'when the first mass-produced resurrection stone "'rolled off the conveyor belt.' Remus smiled sadly. Ah, granddad would have loved to see this, he said. Harry nodded sadly. Yeah, he said softly. In the tunnels of Lunar City, Joel sprawled comfortably in his lounger, a sippy cup of whiskey in the cup holder to his right, and an actual paper copy of Moby Dick in his hands. Perry perched on the left arm of the chair, watching his person quietly. The room was small, even by lunar standards. Four meters deep, two and a quarter meters wide, three meters high. Rooms this size were typically used by transients who were only here for a few nights. Joel loved it, especially after he'd set up some soji screens to get it sectioned up into comfortably small areas. He'd done his share. He'd bounced half of the current colonists up here, deployed most of the nodes in the system scan telescope, deployed two-thirds of the asteroid mining robots in the system, collected more tons of mined materials than he could remember, and even been the carrier for the first ever trip to Aphrodite. He'd kept working into his 90s. By any definition, he'd done his share for humanity. He'd earned his retirement and the choice of how to die. The Xanax had burned out his liver 12 times before they'd shifted him over to the newer, stronger, Zocoramin. That controlled the fear better and left him less fuzzy, but even the, eventually the agoraphobia got bad enough that he was on nearly lethal doses of that as well. Over the years, Perry had spilled a swimming pool of tears on him just to keep him functional. He was tired of it. He was tired of living with fear of being unable to visit a friend on their perfectly normal sized yet terrifyingly large home. He was tired of all of it. As of today, it was over. Today had been his last bounce. He'd taken the first in team out of Vera. He'd loaded himself up with enough excoraman ahead of time that he'd been able to look around for a minute. He wanted to remember the glorious red grass and puffball trees. and what they meant about his achievements. Now he could just be quiet in a comfortable space. He had his favorite book in his hands, the taste of a perfect Macallan, twenty-five in his mouth and Perry beside him. The sleeping pills dissolved and the Macallan would kick in within a few minutes, and he could peacefully drift off. he'd left orders that he wasn't to be resurrected. He reached out and petted the firebird's back with one shaky finger. We did our share, didn't we, old friend? He asked quietly. The firebird stroked his head along Joel's hand, cooing softly, then hopped into Joel's lap. Joel smiled and went back to his book, stroking Perry's back softly as the pills slowly killed him. His last thought, as he drifted off for the long sleep, was to wonder whom Perry would find next, and how amazing that child's life would be. Universes were born and grew and died as the tale wound to a close. An allegory comprehensible to ancient humans might perhaps have made the conversation sound like so. That was a scary story, Daddy. I know, little one, but it's all in the past now. Sleep well, and don't forget to clean up. Yes, Daddy. All the universes that the little entity had spawned over the course of the bedtime story swirled into concepts and flew through non-space to join their creator. All of the stars and planets and motes of dust from all of them were remembered in perfect clarity. All of the beings who had lived and loved and died in all those universes became a tiny fraction of the entity that was the ultimate culmination of their species. And that entity drifted off into sleep, shivering in delighted horror at the story of the long-gone thing called death. Finney. Be well, my friend.